everyone likes me and thinks I'm great in my safe space. My safe space. People don't judge me and haters don't hate in my safe space. Your safe space. Bullyproof windows, troll safe doors, nothing but kindness in here. You might call me a but I won't hear you in my safe space. My safe space. Bulletproof windows. If you do not like me, you are not allowed in my safe space. My safe space. Look and you will see there's a very select crowd in your safe space. My safe space. People that support me mixed in with more people that support me and say nice things rainbows all around me there is no shame in my safe space bulletproof windows i am going to tear down your safe space brick by brick i shall smash it with glee what who is that you cannot stop me from getting inside. I am cold and I am hard, and my name is Reality. <laughs> oh no, not Reality. Somebody stop him. I'll take care of him, Jenny. You, you can't ruin our lives, Reality. Our safe space will keep you out. Dropped. We can face almost anything. But Reality, we can do it out. No. Bullyproof window. That's great. That is absolutely great. Trey Parker and Matt Stone, South Park. Their safe space where reality can't get in. That is not here. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. My favorite part of that is where they chase reality away with their sparkle outfits. You know, <laughs> reality can't get in. Oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> so, speaking of which... Shapiro is going to Mizzou, right? Ben Shapiro is going to speak at the University of Michigan where they're complaining about their safe space and all. This is great. I love this. <laughs> like, you know, like I've got the movie poster all worked out where they where they're going to make the movie. You remember, remember those posters they used to have for, for Japanese uh, monster movies where they, it was like little guys running down the street looking over their shoulders. Like, Godzilla, Godzilla. <laughs> this is going to be like the same thing. Like all the you know, Black Lives Matter people running, oh, Shapiro, Shapiro, yeah. <laughs> it's just going to be, you know, sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes when I go on, when I go on YouTube, you know, they're always showing you videos that they, they think you'll like, so no matter what you're looking for, some, you know, conservative video will come out, and it'll always say things like, you know, Ben Shapiro destroys Piers Morgan. And I'll think, like, that's that's like atom bomb destroys mosquito, you know? <laughs> that's not, I mean, I mean, it's fun to watch, but it's not exactly suspenseful. You know, you're not expecting, you're not expecting, well, the, you know, I thought that mosquito was going to die, but he just really brought it against that atom bomb, you know? <laughs> so you turn it on, it's like, wow, cool, you know? <laughs> but, but this is actually interesting because Shapiro obviously is a devout, you know, practicing Jew, and Judaism is a, I, you know, not to be shallow and and uh, speak in shorthand, but to be shallow and speak in shorthand. It's a it's a rules based, duty based religion, you know. And he believes in in duty and duty first, you know, 
fear God and obey the commandments. That is the whole purpose of man, it says somewhere in Ecclesiastes or something. And, and here he is, he's walking into a, a duty-free zone. It's like at the airport, you know, they say this is duty-free. Like the University of Michigan is now duty-free, you know. You have no, you have no duties. You only, it's only, people only have responsibilities toward you. So it should be interesting when these, uh, when these two collide. That's, I'll be interested to hear if he makes it back. Uh, <laughs> if, not, if not, I want his office, but aside from that. <laughs> so speaking of duty-free zones, I'm looking at the New York Times this morning a former newspaper. And what I, I do, I, I subscribe to the New York Times whenever I'm working. You know, when I'm, if I get immersed in a novel and I'm not doing any political stuff, I just cancel my subscription because it's virtually useless as a newspaper now. It's so slanted and so left-wing that even their good reporting is a kind of a lie. You know, even when they report things well, you think, well, what about all the stuff that's left out? You know, so it's kind of like painting this weird, dishonest picture, even when, though they have many talented reporters. But the one thing that gets me is reading the New York Times, especially if you read the op-eds, but the whole paper, it's, it's a little bit like being a dad. When you're a dad, you know, there's the part where your annoying dad who keeps telling you to put oil in the car or check the oil in the car. Then you're annoying. Oh, Dad, will you, Dad, will you stop? You're so, you're so annoying, you know. And then there's the part where you're like, Dad, I'm, my engine seized up and I'm in the middle of the desert. Could you come and get me? You know, then you're that dad. But there's no time ever where you're the dad who like, Wow, Dad, you really give good advice. You know, next time, next time you tell me, tell me to put oil, check the oil in the car. That's what I'm going to do. You know, that that part is edited out of life completely. It just never, never had. See, I kind of a little bit. I hate to say it, like, a little bit like being a husband. <laughs> Same thing. You know, it's like would you stop bothering me about the oil in there. Would you come and get me my engine seized up? But there's never the part where like you were right. You give good advice. <clears throat> it, it's the exact same experience reading the New York Times. Reading the New York Times, you have the part where nasty conservatives are hating on Muslim immigrants. Nasty conservatives are trying to end Social Security. You know, nasty conservatives. And then you have the part where, like, Muslim immigrants are killing people. You know, and we, we really have to do something about security when Muslims are immigrants. And then you have, oh, social, today, there was a piece, you know, everything's great. People are living so much longer, but there's one little flaw with this. Social Security may be just going a little bit broke, you know? And, and you know, when, when they started Social Security, it kicked in at 65, and the average lifespan was 63. People died before they got Social Security. Now the average lifespan is well into your 80s, and so it's a problem. Paul Ryan says, let's reform Social Security, and they make television commercials of Paul Ryan pushing an old lady off a cliff, literally, you know, pushing her wheelchair off a cliff. But now the New York Times has reached the part where they realize Social Security is going broke. They realize that you know, Muslim immigrants are a problem. And they've, they just completely skip over the part where, <clears throat> gee, you evil conservatives kind of were right. You know, you give good advice. Next time we'll listen to you. And they've moved right on to the part where evil conservatives are using this attack in Paris to become, to spread Islamophobia. You know, so, and they move right on to, well, yes, we do have to fix Social Security, but evil conservatives don't want us, you know, now they want us to fix Medicaid. What's wrong with them? It's a, so there's always, like, just that part where, like, evil conservatives got it right, thank you very much, and now we'll start listening to you, has been edited out of the, of the story completely. So I was thinking about this over the weekend as I'm watching this picture, train wreck. This is a, uh, a picture with uh, Amy Schumer, this new uh, female, obviously female comedian, who has just become the darling of, um, of 
feminists, uh, that she got in a little trouble over some of her racial jokes and all this stuff. But I, I, it came back to me this morning, one of the big stories was Charlie Sheen is HIV positive. Charlie Sheen, yeah, it's, it's a you know, big surprise. Charlie Sheen is HIV, yeah. I mean, who would have ever thought that a guy who like took drugs and slept with everything he could find would ever become HIV positive? And so evil conservatives were making fun of Charlie Sheen, and now evil conservatives are blaming him for you know, becoming HIV positive. But we missed the, the part where evil conservatives said, take it, you know, take responsibility for your, your sex life. I remember this during the AIDS crisis. I mean, I, I lost friends during the AIDS crisis. I'm not being, you know, blithe, blithe about it. <clears throat> but just before the AIDS crisis hit, in the decade before the AIDS crisis hit, there were these things called bathhouses, you know, where gay guys were meeting up with strangers and sleeping, so help me, <laughs> with double-digit strangers having unprotected sex with double-digit strangers in the course of one night, okay? And then when they started to get ill, it was, you know, evil conservatives were saying gay people should, you know, stop being promiscuous. So they were evil conservatives stop being promiscuous. Then they all started to get ill, and it was evil conservatives were blaming the victims and being homophobic for saying that was an unhealthy... There was no point at which people said... Well, wait a minute, you know, evil conservatives were kind of right, you know, maybe, maybe you shouldn't sleep with double-digit strangers in the course of a single evening, you know. That, that part never existed. It was always, there was a play, Angels in America. This is, for many gay people, this is a watershed play uh, where they got respect on stage, a huge hit. This play, so help me, if you watch it's kind of uh, the message of the play, the underlying message, blames conservatives like Roy Cohn who was a gay conservative, closeted gay conservative, for the AIDS crisis, which, for, with which, we, you know, there, there was an activist, I'll never forget this, there was an activist, and this, and this thing was brutal, by the way. This is, I'm talking about the 80s. I watched, like, an entire industry, the theater industry was just gutted. I mean, of all of its talents, so many, you know, geniuses, really, people who were just the, the future of the theater, just completely erased. So I'm not being blithe about it, but I remember hearing an activist saying, why didn't the government close the bathhouses? And you think, like, I'm sorry? You know, like, like, why didn't you not go to the bathhouses? It's not the government's job to come and stop you from going in and, you know, banging 18 people in a single night. It's not what the government does. That's what you do. That's why, that's the personal responsibility part. But that part never existed. So now Charlie Sheen has AIDS, and, I, you know, I feel for the guy. I remember when uh, he was going out winning, I'm winning, I'm sleeping with prostitutes, I'm winning, I'm winning. I'm th I remember just feeling sorry for him, just thinking this is a guy who's driven himself insane with drugs. And, you know, the, we're making fun of him and we're all laughing, and I was laughing. It was funny to watch him. But at the same time, it is a human being who's obviously going down the drain. And a little bit of reflection, you start to realize, it's very hard for us to realize that celebrities are real people. They're really just characters in the, our little imaginary dramas. You know, we, we think we care about them, but we don't really, they're like, you know, when it's like when the guy dies in a soap opera and you're going like, oh, boo-hoo, boo-hoo. But He's not real, so you don't really care about him. That's the way we actually are with celebrities. We think like, oh wow, Charlie Sheen, that's weird, you know, but we don't care. We don't we don't even know he's real. And and now he is real and he's he's got this this horrible illness. He's gonna have to deal with this for the rest of his life. And <laughs> it's like that there was there is no point at which anybody says, yeah, maybe we can draw a conclusion from this, and maybe the next time some pencil-necked Baptist preacher is in our face shouting about, you know, sexual immorality, maybe you have to listen to the guy and think, well, he's not all wrong. There's something about. It. So anyway, to get back to this picture, Trainwreck, I'm thinking about all this as I'm watching Trainwreck. 
Trainwreck is, uh, who's the, what's the name? Judd Apatow is the director. And Judd Apatow has been hunted by liberals and like the New York Times. He's been accused of being a conservative. And he keeps saying, no, no, I'm not a conservative. But he keeps making these sex comedies that are, how can I put it? They're, they're, if, if you don't like foul-mouthed language, they are so foul-mouthed. It's like you can't believe the, the language. Very, very specific jokes about very, very specific sexual functions. But the messages of these things, these are the most conservative movies being made. And I'm not the first person to say this. And I've, this picture came out in the summer. I'm just getting the screener. And I don't, I don't even think, has it come out on DVD? I'm not even sure whether it's come out on DVD. Yeah, it hasn't come out yet on DVD. You have to look at this to believe it. First, it opens up with this opening scene. Um, what, what's the name of it? Just so I know the name of this uh, comedian. Um, Colin Quinn, very funny guy from Saturday Night Live. Colin Quinn plays the dad of these two girls. And the first scene in the movie is he comes out to these two little girls and explains to them why he's getting divorced. It's actually the funniest, the best scene in the movie. So do we, do we have this, this clip? Okay, so let's take a look at this scene where Colin Quinn, he's the dad of these two little girls, comes out and explains to them why he's getting divorced. I don't know what your mother told you, but let me explain it from my side in terms you can understand. You got your doll, right? You got your doll there. Yeah. You love your doll? Yeah. Yes. But what if I told you that was the only doll you were allowed to play with the rest of your life? How would you feel? Sad. You'd feel sad. Of course. <laughs> There's other dolls you like, and they're making new dolls every year. You want a stewardess doll? Yeah. yeah. What about a slightly overweight cocktail waitress doll? Yeah. Yeah. What about a doll who happens to be best friends with your main doll? Yeah. yeah. It could happen, right? <laughs> What about a doll you only play with one day and never see again? Yeah. So that's why me and Mama get married. <laughs> I mean, it's a great scene. It's a brilliant piece of writing. And it's, it's, it's telling you the truth. I mean, the thing that's so touching about the movie is the dad character is a genuine bad guy. He's, a, you know, he's, uh, he cheats on his wife and he's abusive and not a kind word comes out of his mouth. But Amy Schumer, his daughter, loves him. It's, his, it's her dad and he's kind of lovable. He's got this guy, he's so bad, he's so wicked that he has this kind of lovable wickedness to him. <clears throat> and she loves him and, and this is really psychologically sound. Rather than admit, at the end of the scene, he says to these two girls, repeat after me, monogamy doesn't work. Monogamy doesn't work. Repeat after me. And so she, rather than admit that her dad is wrong and kind of a bastard, really, <laughs> rather than admit that to herself, she lives out his creed. And so when we meet her, she is going out every night and drinking herself sick and smoking dope and uh, sleeping with absolute idiots, sleeping with strangers, one night stands and very selfish, you know, uh, kind of tossing them out. The whole thing is never, never to, um, you know, get connected with anybody. And then, of course, it's a rom-com. So, you know, I can say there'll be no spoilers and I'll try not to spoil anything, but it's a rom-com. You know how it ends. So very early on, she meets Bill Hader, who plays a sports doctor, and he's kind of a cool, nerdy guy. He hasn't had a girl in six years or something. He hasn't been to bed with a girl in six years. And he falls for her, and she starts to like it. And so she's now going out with one guy, and it's working out for her. And she has this sister who is, as far as I was concerned, kind of the revelation of the movie. Uh, her name is Brie Larson. The actress is Brie Larson. She was just absolutely charming. But she plays the sister who gets it right. She realizes that the dad is a creep, 
and she alienates herself from the dad, which causes her sorrow, but it also means that she can live a stalwart life. And she gets pregnant by her husband. She has an adopted son and a husband. She gets pregnant, and she has a baby shower, and Amy Schumer and her new boyfriend show up at the baby shower, and of course all the women start going, well, when are you going to have kids? And the guy says, yeah, I would like that. And Amy Schumer panics. So here's a scene where Amy Schumer and her sister is trying to calm her down. It's because don't, don't panic. People do have children, and it's okay, okay? Just breathe. Just breathe. It's fine. Who wants to have kids? Mm-hmm. Like, right now. People talk about that. Not really. It's fine. I don't know anyone that talks about that. It's great. <laughs> it's normal. I think Aaron's great. I really like him. Can you tell the members of Heaven's Gate in there to relax? No, he's too nice. He's not too nice. Yes, he is. He's too nice for me. You know it. No, I, no. He's the perfect amount of nice that you deserve. Yeah, but you know what? There's deal breakers across the board with him. Like, the sex is good. It's, like, really good. Like, it's, it's great, but it's not, like, the best I've ever had, you know? You're right. You don't want best sex that you've ever had, guy. No, you want to stay with the best you've ever had, guy. No, you don't. That's a creepy guy. You don't want to be with that guy. Best sex that you've ever had, guy, is in jail. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I've been thinking about maybe reaching out to him. <laughs> <laughs> it almost looked like an ad lib. I'm not sure if, what I'm thinking. I'm thinking he's the best sex you ever had guys in jail, but I've been thinking of reaching out to him, you know? And, and so, I, look, you can see where this is going, but it goes there, and it really goes there, and there's a scene. I won't give away the last scene, but I will give away a little bit of the concept of the scene. At one point, all rom-coms have the same uh, crisis. They have an argument. The couple splits up, and they come back together. And during this argument... She says, what you really want to this sports doctor is a cheerleader. And he says, you know, cheerleaders make people happy and bring them together. And I, I have to say, I, even I sat up in my chair. I thought, really? We're, we're in favor of cheerleaders? And yes, they are. That is basically what this is saying, you know? That there is, that the consequences of, of living in a certain way are one thing, and the consequences of living in another way will lead you to happiness, you know? And, and so this, this picture could have been written by a Baptist priest, preacher and then brought to somebody, and he, and he might have said, like, please translate this into foul mouth, okay? <laughs> because, because it really is, I mean, just please, you know, I know that if I, if I say it, if I go out there and say, you know, sin will lead you to destruction, I know nobody will listen to me, but if you go out and just take my sin will lead you to destruction and turn it into F word, F word, F word, F word, sin will lead you to destruction, then everybody w- will, will listen to me, and then we'll have this great movie, and, and people will be entertained. This is not. This movie's not alone. Obviously, this is a big, big strain in uh, these sex comedies where they have to deal with the consequences of having sex. There was one, I don't know, about eight years ago, Juno, that was a huge hit. I think the screenplay. The screenplay was by a woman named Diablo Cody, whose cred, her street cred, came from the fact that she had been a stripper. Okay, so she'd been a stripper, and she wrote this picture about a 16-year-old girl who gets pregnant. And a lot of, you know, religious people saying, oh, this is terrible, we're glamorizing this. In this picture, she goes to get an abortion. She's pregnant, she needs an abortion. She goes to get an abortion, and she bumps into, this is Ellen Page, plays Juno, and she bumps into a nerdy Asian friend of hers who's protesting abortion, right? So this is the scene as Juno, this pregnant 16-year-old, bumps into her nerdy, uh, you know, unappealing friend who tells her not to have an abortion. Well, it's good seeing you, Su Chin. Your, your baby probably has a beating heart, you know. It can feel pain. And it has fingernails. Fingernails? Really? 
that, that if, if you're not watching but just listening, those tapping that you're people, she's sitting in the abortion waiting room and she starts to hear people drumming their fingernails and filing their fingernails and scratching themselves with their fingernails. And basically the message is your baby is a human being. He has fingernails. Something about that just reaches her and she walks out of the abortion clinic and she decides to have the baby. I mean, if, if I had said that, if I had just come out and said it, if I had said your baby is a human being, when you have an abortion, you are killing a human being, you know, it doesn't even matter what, what happens to your life. Gloria Steinem, I think, recently said, well, my abortion made my life possible. Yeah, it did, but it made your baby's life impossible. And, you know, and, and there is a, we do have a moral responsibility. But this is in a, this foul-mouthed, sex-filled picture about a, a child of 16 getting pregnant, knocked up the same way. That's another Judd Apatow picture with, uh, what's his name, uh, Groban. Um, is, that, is that his name? Am I, did I, what, what's that? Rogan. Rogan, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Rogan. Uh, Seth Rogan, who we now, now we remember Seth Rogan. Keep Seth Rogan in mind for a minute. We remember him because he just attacked Ben Carson. Seth Rogan just attacked Ben Carson for making the outlandish suggestion that it might have been a nice thing had some of the German populace had guns when the Nazis took over Germany. And Seth Rogan went nuts and tweeted this obscenity against Ben Carson because who could ever suggest such a terrible thing? Seth Rogan was in a movie just about a year, two years ago, called This is the End. This picture, first of all, this, of all these comedies, I, you know, I have to admit I'm not like the best audience for these comedies. I find them amusing. They make me simper. They don't make me laugh. You know, I smile. This is the End made me laugh. This is a really funny comedy, and, and Seth Rogen wrote, wrote it with a, his writing partner, I think Evan Goldberg, I think his name is. And in This is the End, a bunch of movie stars, all playing themselves, so Seth Rogen plays himself and all the different, you know, comedy movie stars, this whole com comedy mafia, Emma Watson, they all show up as themselves. And they're all at a party at James Franco's house. And James Franco is kind of famous for being this obnoxious movie star type. And they all play themselves as obnoxious movie stars. And they're just having this dope-filled, sex-filled party. Rihanna is there, and they're all just, just saying obnoxious things, and they are the most obnoxious people. And they're playing themselves under their own name. They're playing the most obnoxious, and the apocalypse hits. And maybe if you're a biblical scholar, you'd say, well, that's not the way of the apocalypse. But it's the biblical apocalypse. It's the rapture. People are being lifted up into heaven. A, you know, pits are opening up in the middle of Los Angeles, and devils are dragging Rihanna down into hell. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And it's based on moral behavior. If you're selfless, you get in the rapture, you're taken up to heaven. And if you're a typical Hollywood narcissist, you're dragged down into hell. It's that simple. And it's so simple that one of the funniest scenes in the movie is when one of the guys gets lifted up in the rapture and starts to brag about it and he's dumped back on earth <laughs> because, because he's bragging and he's telling his friends, hey, hey, you know, you're not getting to go to heaven like I am. So, I mean, it's an amazing, amazing religious statement. There's one, my favorite scene, or one of my favorite scenes is they're all sitting around trying to figure out what happens. They're all kind of in this group, like huddled together and what's, what's going on. And finally somebody says, I, I think this is the apocalypse, you know? And Rogan says, well, that would mean there's a God. Who saw that coming? And the guy next to him says, 95% of the people on Earth. <laughs> you know, and the point is, this insular Hollywood narcissistic community is the only place where they don't know this is coming, you know? And, and how could you possibly, who else could sell that message to kids but Seth Rogen, who's like a, you know, a, a vowed dope smoker and this, you know, foul-mouthed guy? 
<clears throat> and it's, it's amazing. These guys are doing the work for us. But there is no point, there is never a point where Seth Rogen turns to the pencil-necked Baptist preacher and says, you know, pencil-necked Baptist preacher, <clears throat> you have a funny southern accent and you say these things in this very harsh voice, but you're actually telling the truth, you know? And this is, this is a point that has been made most recently by uh, Charles Murray, the sociologist. Charles Murray uh, wrote a book with somebody else, another sociologist, called The Bell Curve. And in The Bell Curve, he was just looking at IQ tests, and he realized that black people's, Americans' IQs were continually lower than white Americans' IQs. And he was speculating why this might be, no matter what the background was, no matter where they were going, what, you know, middle class, uh, lower class, it was always the same. And at one point, he says, in the mildest possible way, it's possible that some of this is genetic. It's possible. Well, of course, he was crucified. He was just absolutely run from pillar to post, you know, hounded out of polite society. And so he learned his lesson. And he decided what he was going to do is write a book about white people. And he wrote a book called Coming Apart, which I've read, and it's a really interesting book. And in it, he starts to notice that from the 60s on, the way that white people in the upper classes, or the upper middle classes have behaved, has separated from the way that poor white people behave. And he says, one of the, this is true about religion, it's true about the work ethic, but most importantly, he says, it's true about marriage. So here's a, a brief cut where he explains, just listen to the numbers, where he explains the difference now between rich and poor white people when it comes to marriage. Uh, 1960, you had about 94% uh, of uh, white in the upper middle class who were married compared to about 84% of whites in the working class. Uh, 19, uh, 2010, that was 84% in the upper middle class. Uh, marriage has been quite stable now for about 20 years. Divorce has been down. Uh, it's still the norm. In the white working class, as of 2010, ages 30 to 49, 48% are married, less than half. That's partly divorce, but a lot of it is never married, so that you have a third of all white males, ages 30 to 49, in the working class who have never been married. And all of those of us who think George Gilder was right about the way that marriage civilizes men have to worry about that. Uh, because when men do not get married, they behave worse in all sorts of ways, ranging from crime to uh, labor force behavior. So Murray's point in this book is that rich white people have figured something out in the years since the 60s. After the 60s, everybody kind of went a little off track. Everybody started to go away from their religion and leave their wives and all this stuff. But as the years and the decades went on, rich white people figured something out, that that was not the way to a happy, successful life. And so they started to congeal around certain behaviors, hard work, faith, marriage, you know, having your kids in wedlock. The poor white people continued on that track and continued in behaviors that keep them in poverty and keep them from getting ahead. And one of the things that Murray says is that the change that has taken place is that rich white people will no longer, as he puts it, preach what they practice. They will not say, behave like this and your life will go better. They won't say it. And I think what's happening in Hollywood is these people who are making these comedies are afraid to come out and say, you know, we agree with the pencil neck Baptist preacher. 
We may not put it that way. We don't want to sound judgmental. We don't want to be the guy who makes the law. It's really interesting that it's the left that has been promulgating these oppressive yes-means-yes laws where you have to say yes to every sexual moment of a sexual encounter because they let the social structures collapse that protected women. And so when conservative, evil conservatives were saying all these women who are hooking up and getting drunk and having you know, one affair after another in college, they're doing the wrong thing, they're treating, and the feminists went nuts. This is evil conservatives, evil conservatives telling us we can't be the same as men. And now, of course, that, men, that women feel abused and raped and, and taken advantage of, they have to pass these oppressive laws. If they had listened to the evil conservatives, they could have just had a social structure that had internal regulation and not have enslaved people with these stupid yes-means-yes laws. But they never get to that point. They never get to the point where they say, oh, wait, evil conservative was right. And so my question, I guess, the thing that I would like to put forward to the right is why not? Why not start to listen? To these guys. I know they talk differently than you do, and I know they can sound judgmental, and I know your, their God is not your God, but why not start to say, hey, you know, they have something to say, maybe we should listen to them. And my, the thing that I would like to say to the right is, instead of writing me letters asking me why my characters curse in my books, and why, you know, if you call yourself a Christian, why do you let your characters curse? Instead of condemning these guys, why not start to support the people who are saying what we need them to say in a way that reaches the people who most need to hear it. Because there comes a point when not preaching what you practice is like being in a tribe that invents fire and refusing to give it to the tribe next door because you don't want to seem like an imperialist, you know? You don't want to seem like you're, you're pushing anything on them, so they're forced to live in the dark. I mean, once you find fire, you ought to share it. And once you find that a certain way of life leads to happiness, it's not a sin. It's not a sin to let people know. All right. Stuff I like. While we're talking about sex comedies, I have to bring up this, this picture. Most people do not know. Have you ever seen, anybody ever seen a picture called Noises Off? No? Okay. Noises Off is based, it's a 1992 Peter Bogdanovich film. People kind of forgotten him, but he was a big director for a while in the uh, 80s, 90s. And it's got Michael Caine and Carol Burnett and this kind of cast of minor stars. It's based on a hilarious play written in 1982 by Michael Frayn, an excellent both serious and comic British playwright, and it's a farce. I, I'm not going to play any scenes from it because you can't get it unless you watch it. It builds, so you have to see the beginning of it to understand the middle of it. <clears throat> I put this on one night when everybody was asleep in my house, and I laughed so hard I wound up on the floor, pounding the floor with my fists. The next evening, the very next evening, I said to my family, you've got to watch this movie, and I watched it again. My daughter loves this picture so much that it has become her test of whether people have a sense of humor is after she gets to know you and she, she thinks you might be worth liking, she will show you noises off to see if you can appreciate it. It's a really, really funny movie. It's flawed. It's not as perfect. The play is perfect. It's not as perfect as the play, and it's got its flaws, but it's worth watching. Noises Off with Michael Caine. Definitely take a look at it. And if anybody does take a look at it and gets see it who hasn't seen it before, uh, let me know what you think. I'd be really interested to hear that's it today. It's, this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I'm Andrew Clavin. Thanks for listening. I will see you again tomorrow.